somebody who's a rapturist uh, who believes that uh, would suggest that this is referring to a snatching away where there's a disappearance of Christians prior to prior to a, a seven-year period of tribulation. Now, where did that idea come from? If you look at the first, I would say, up until the 19th century, it's argued, it's argued that this idea didn't really exist in any organized form. Hey, well, welcome to the Office Theology Podcast. I have special guest Chris Palmer, and we are tackling the hot take of end times and revelation. But I should say, Chris is tackling it, and I'm just here to listen and here to watch. Um, so Chris, he's the Dean of Theos U and Theos Seminary, international teacher, Greek scholar, professor, uh, professor of theology, and an author as well. And you're working on your PhD, is that correct? Yeah, I'm about six months uh, out from it. It's been a six-year project and, uh, at the University of Wales, and, and we are on our way to being done. Mm. So happy about that. Six. It's been a six-year process, and you're six months out? That's about, Ooh, yeah, yeah. That's it's, great. It, it, it's, I see the light at the end of the title, and it's not a train, hopefully. So. Yeah, and what is it in? Uh, it's, in it's a PhD, so philosophy and religion, and uh, my thesis is an exploration of theodicy and suffering in the book of Revelation. So. I've had to deal with a lot of source material from Revelation, kind of getting at it a different way, but um, it's been it's been a philosophical and theological journey. Um, happy yeah. for it to be done. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, tell us a little more about you, if you want. Like, just let yeah, us so, into the life uh, of Chris a little bit. Cool, man. Well, love your page. Love office theology. It always <laughs> makes me laugh. Um, it's uh, in in the meme world we come from. Uh, it's good to have an ally like yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, Theo Shoe memes are fans of you, so we're in good company. Um, but yeah, do you want to know a funny story real quick about yeah, Theo Shoe me. memes? Yes. So, eleven months ago, I was I responded to a Theo Shoe memes when my account had like three hundred followers, and I don't know who it was, but someone messaged me back saying, "The Office meme page is never funny and will never make it." <laughs> <laughs> Someone straight up roasted me and yeah. I'm like, okay, number one is an accident. That was my personal page and whatever, but it was yeah. just really funny. And here you are. Here I am. We're, yeah. We are allies in the meme world now. The meme Sorry, page, anyways, keep going. The meme page is wrong once in a blue moon, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. Just don't throw me in jail for it. No, no. You get a pass for yeah. this. You get a pass. Um, okay, few. Okay. Tell us more about you. From Michigan, uh, moved to... Um, California a year, uh, two years ago, and then uh, was with, with ASU, started building the school and the seminary that we now have, and uh, we mm -hmm. moved ourselves to Franklin, Tennessee. So I'm joining you today from Franklin. Um, nice. Yeah, I have been teaching at the professor level for almost five years, and yeah, I love theology, um, and mm -hmm. it's great to have conversations anytime we talk about the book of Revelation. So mm, Absolutely. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. Super appreciative of it. And this would be a good time for people listening. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a three-month, like, uh, it's a gift card for a three-month subscription to Theos U that we're going to do a giveaway with. So make sure you look out for that and so you can hear all of the wonderful teaching that Chris talks about. Okay, so we're going to hop into the topic. Um probably about a month and a half ago now, I did a hot take on 
end times and revelation. And this is how it panned out after I shared with you about several thousand responses. Um, But before we jump into the polls, uh, we need to do some definition work. So what is the great tribulation? So it depends. It depends who you ask what the great tribulation is. Uh, If you're, if you're, I think maybe the first question we we, would want to establish is millennial views. The way that I say it in our class at the OSU is that how people think about the millennium is where is the waypoint for people to begin thinking about the Lord's return. And mm-hmm. for that reason, uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, chapters 1, verses 1 to 5, there's mention of a thousand-year period. Mm-hmm. People that, so there's different ways of thinking about this that have emerged uh, throughout the millennia of church history. What, what do you do with that thousand-year period? Uh, a position called the historic pre position will say that that's a literal thousand years, and Jesus comes back. Uh, and returns at the beginning of that 1,000 years and rules bodily on the earth for 1,000 years. Then there's a position called Amil, and some people typically say that it means that they don't believe there's really a millennium, but it's probably not true to form. They would say that the um, 1,000 years is not a literal 1,000 years, mm-hmm. and it's and it's the church period or the time of the church uh, that began with the second advent of Christ, and continues until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, um, we go into the new heaven and the new earth. There's a, in, in both of those positions, presume that there's going to be times of suffering. Mm-hmm. Those positions would look at possibly the, the, the potentiality of an increased time of suffering that's going to take place before Christ comes back. Um, and then there's a post-mill position where they look at and say, hey, you know what? We're kind of like the on-mill position, but we also believe that things are actually going to get better before Jesus returns. Yeah, And then you have where, where that language is extracted, for the most part, is a position called pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism. And it gets confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and these individuals believe that there's a second uh, return of Christ, well, typically a third, but there's a yeah. catching away of the church that mm-hmm. takes place uh, before a seven-year period, mm-hmm. and after that seven-year period, Christ returns bodily, and then there's a thousand-year period, and then the new, then Satan's loosed, and there's the new heavens and the new earth. So, yeah, depending on who you ask, the Great Tribulation usually these days is used by pre-tribulation, pre-millennialists to refer to the last three, mm-hmm. three and a half years of that seven years tribulation. So, um, okay. which a dispense a, a pre-tribulationist individual doesn't believe uh, that they'll be here during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that would be the Great Tribulation in, in dispensational terms, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and so those are usually the the crosshairs of Theosu memes, the dispensationalist, right? Yeah, they get caught in the crossfires. They, they, they absolutely do. Um, yeah. yeah. So they, they they certainly are are pushed to push the limits. And I don't think it's mm-hmm. because we don't we, we don't like dispensationalists per se. I just mm-hmm. think that you know, we like to pick on theology that sort of is, is winning the day. Um, yeah. Theological positions, people really haven't thought about, like, why do I hold this eschatological position? And they're not doing it in spite of anyone. It's just what they grew up hearing, what they taught. Um, mm-hmm. it, it stands to reason that all of us have inherited our theology. If we haven't thought about it, we have two options, Brennan. We've either thought about our theology or we've inherited our theology. And yeah. it doesn't mean that all inherited theology is bad. But even if we've inherited it, we'd like it, it serves as well to think about it 
And mm -hmm. we may, in, in thinking about it, have to adjust our positions. And that doesn't mean we're deconstructing. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that we're walking away from Christ. Or it doesn't mean that we're you know, part of some great falling away or we're being rebellious. It just means that yeah. theology is a conversation that we're not always trying, a conversation that we never try to put a period on it because yeah. there's always more to say and there's always ways to say it differently. Hmm. So. That's, yeah, well said. And I think what we're going to, I'm going to learn probably specifically is from this conversation, every uh, simple question is probably a little more intricate than I'm realizing with that. So that mm -hmm. all came from what is the great tribulation. And so I, it was a I question. It. It, it was probably a yeah. question you got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So that's, that's helpful. That, that, um, that helps bring some, some context to it. Uh, where does the term uh, rapture come from? And this question raptures in quotes, yeah. just to clarify. <clears throat> so in first Thessalonians chapter four, um, there's the use of this, this, this word in the Greek harpazo, it means to catch mm -hmm. away or take out of. Mm -hmm. And it's referring to what happens at the moment of Christ's return. The three millennial views, which are post-mill, historic pre-mill, and ah-mill, would say that this language is referring to a time where Christ comes back. And it's using language from Daniel chapter 7, various mm -hmm. places of the Old Testament, to describe... Um, descriptively, mm -hmm. how it's going to be when saints go meet the Lord at his return. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they don't look at it necessarily as a snatching away, a secret snatching away of the Lord. They look at it as I don't, a, a descriptive language, creative language mm -hmm. that's being used to express the joy and elation yeah. and what the experience is going to be like when, when Jesus returns and he comes back uh, for his people. Somebody yeah. who's a rapturist, uh, mm -hmm. who believes that, uh, would suggest that this is referring to a snatching away, where there's a disappearance of Christians prior to prior to a, a seven-year period of tribulation. Now, where did that idea come from? If you look at the first, I would say, up until the 19th century, it's argued, it's argued that this idea didn't really exist in any mm -hmm. organized form. Now, mm -hmm. the scholars, they're legitimate dispensational. We call these, I'll refer to these individuals as dispensationalists, and we won't get into that right now why. These dispensationalists would say, well, people believe this before that. I, I've, I've read the, their, their works and their cases. It's really hard to make a case that anybody was believing prior to the 19th century yeah. that there's going to be a snatching away. Um, there was a figure by the name of John Nelson Darby, and he's mm -hmm. sort of become popular in theological circles to talk about this guy who emerged out of an Irby night meeting in the UK um, where he began to purport this idea of a second secret snatching away. Mm -hmm. This became popularized by a gentleman named C.I. Schofield who wrote what is called the Schofield Bible, mm -hmm. where he took Darby's system that included, <coughs> excuse me, a pre-tribulation rapture and made it very popular within the footnotes of this Bible. Now, this Bible uh, sold into the millions and was very popular among evangelicals. Hmm. Um, fundamentalism, fundamentalism was emerging at that time as a counter to, um, what's the word, uh, Darwinism. And so yeah. the fundamentalists really took the Darby system, and it became very popular. And then the Pentecostals kind of latched onto it for other reasons. Mm-hmm. 
And before you knew it, Darbyism and this idea of a second a rapture was was becoming very popular. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's kind of where we find eschatology today. Yeah. And this in um, after Darby and kind of all of that, that's when the series Left Behind kind of became popular. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, eventually. Yeah. Um, Darby was in the 19th, it was in the early 20th century, even before that. But mm-hmm. Schofield's Bible comes out in the early 20th century. And then, then in the 70s, how Lindsay, the late great planet Earth, begins to sell, sold 30 million copies. And then yeah. that was an influence for the Left Behind series, which ended up selling, I think, present day 80 million copies. And so a lot of people, their only thing they've ever known eschatologically is, yeah. is this. But, you know, when you look back um, in the first century, but if you go to the 16th century when Leonardo, uh, Michelangelo's painting mm-hmm. and he's putting up the Lord's return, I mean, it doesn't seem very violent. It yeah. seems... Um, you look at the painting and the frescoes that he has on the Sistine Chapel of the Lord's Return. It doesn't look like the conspiratorial um, Lord's Return that we have today where there's a secret snatching away. You just don't yeah. see that. So history of interpretation is very important when it comes to eschatology yeah. and the way that uh, things were being interpreted, we know from artists and from culture and from popular readings at the time, um, really didn't have this idea of a, pre- a pre-tribulation rapture. Hmm. That's interesting. It's it's funny because uh, I feel like a lot of people uh, on my page will reference Left Behind and like yep. how it scared them and different stuff like that. But I I don't know if you know, but I grew up like hardcore LDS, like Mormon, mm. and so um, that I had my own own issues to deal with growing up that way. But <laughs> yeah, but Left Behind uh, was not one of them because I'm like sure, and I I try watching like this is ridiculous. Yeah, but I I couldn't do it. Yeah, but uh, that's helpful. Okay, it, yeah, um, it's very po- it's very popular, and a lot of people. Um, that's just what they were given, and that's what they yeah. know, and they assume. Um, but when you, but the, the encouraging thing is, is that it's a very late reading of. Yeah, it's a very late reading. Um, of of eschatology, it's 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 very new, relatively yeah. speaking, and there's other ways of thinking about it that are mm-hmm. have been around much longer. Yeah, and I heard you you kind of alluded to it. Um, a lot of people have either been handed down their theology or they thought of, they've thought about their theology. And what I'm learning, um, just even from these poll numbers that I'll share in a little bit is a lot of people, their view on the end times have been handed down to them. They haven't put yep. a lot of thought into it because I think the conversation of end times or even the book of revelation can seem really, really intimidating. So they're like, yep. I'm not sure what to do with this. And this person seems like they've done the most research. Sure. I'll just kind of adopt that. But I've also noticed a lot of people hold it pretty loosely, at least that I've talked to. Like it's, I'm not really sure. I kind of, because it's probably a younger generation I deal with that has just kind of not written off. That's the wrong way to put it, but um, they're not really holding it with a close fist. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're talking about their eschatology. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some, Some people, yeah, it's, there's always the proverbial apology from pastors when they go to preach the book of Revelation because they know that people are hesitant towards talking about it owing to how it's it's been very conspiratorial in the last 150 yeah. years. And, oh, yeah. peop- and and pastors today of healthy congregations don't really want to be involved in anything conspiratorial. They don't want to wear their mm-hmm. people out. They know where their people are at. And anything they preach, they want it to be encouraging. They want it to be uplifting. They want it to be something that mm-hmm. can sustain their lives and help build faithful communities of people who follow Jesus. Yeah. And and you know, 
trying to follow, you know, Rayford Steele and Chloe in the Left Behind series as they run through the deserts and they use satellites to find track down the Antichrist is anything but that. And so they they, they make apologies for it. Oh, the good news is is that people are moving away from this attitude that mm-hmm. evangelicals, even Pentecostals, have had towards the book of Revelation, specifically yeah. in North America, for the longest time. Yeah. And I would say that there is a renaissance of the book of Revelation that is taking place. And yeah. I can it is happening inside of scholarly circles first, mm-hmm. and it's, it's moving its way into uh, pastors and, and pulpits uh, of, of churches, and I, I can start seeing evidence for that. And so... I think it's yeah. helpful to to rethink how we've been thinking about the book of Revelation. Oh, for sure. And I think that's what's exciting too is um, I've been studying and diving deep as well because the church I'm a, I, I'm a pastor at, we're kicking off uh, starting January 14th, going through the book of Revelation. And uh, I've been talking with our lead pastor quite a bit and just kind of like wrestling through all that this is because he grew up like true, like AG assemblies yep. of God, yep. um, kind of in that circle. And I'm, I haven't really heard much. I mean, learned much about it beyond just reading through like Bible plans. Um, but yeah, we're, we're excited to go through it and kind of help our people, um, think about it differently. And it's crazy mm-hmm. how many people after we announce, they're like, I might not come to church for those several months that we're going through it because they're nervous. about <coughs> it. Yeah. They're very nervous. Yeah. And, and rightfully so. I mean, I'm not saying that they shouldn't come to church, but I, I understand their hesitations. Yeah. Nothing has really been, I mean, when we think of book revelation, we th- there's this scary, fantastic imagery in it, but we, we just, you know, we, we did, we just did a town hall mm-hmm. at the OSU and my way into revelation is when, when I did I, in my thesis work um, that I worked on for six years. Yeah. My largest chapter, my fourth chapter is a, <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold here. Um, and I'm at the, I'm at the itchy throat cough stage. Yep. Perfect for interviews. Perfect for interviews. It's <laughs> it, you, you, our last town hall. We cough so much. We're going to make a montage out of it. But the, um, the, the, the reading that I did engages, uh, the text and it, it, it my fourth chapter is a about 150 page commentary on the book of revelation from one to chapter 22. Hmm. And what I really love about it is that it's just a, a narrative reading of the text. Yeah. And a, a narrative reading means that it's dealing specifically with what's there in the text and what's not there in the text. And it gave me the opportunity to kind of put aside the categories for a second yeah. and not have to decide, do I want to come at this as a pre-mill? Do I want to come at this as an amill? Mm-hmm. Where is the rapture at? Is the rapture yeah. not in here? And, and, and yeah. kind of start off on the foot that everybody gives to you and basically mm-hmm. the method we can talk about that another time that I came yeah. at it with was like let's just deal with what's in the text and what a hearer might hear as they read the text and working through that was tremendously helpful and mm-hmm. one thing that began to emerge from this is you know revelation is not a, a chronology about how the world is going to end mm-hmm. revelation is not a map about God's future dealings specifically with no scholar says that yeah scholars that are looking at it and understanding how apocalyptic emerged particularly in the second temple period a little bit before that but 
it was really kind of caught fire in this period of time, was owing to the people of God suffering as well as the expectation that God would vindicate that suffering hmm. and seeing how the wicked was not necessarily how the wicked was sort of getting ahead and how the people of God had to suffer. And how do you, how do you write hmm. to people that are suffering? How do you write to people that are being very faithful to God and experiencing loss and experiencing tragedy hmm. in a way that can encourage them that God was going to somehow vindicate their judgment without actually explaining how he's going to do it. Yeah. And there was this apocalyptic was a genre that would use symbolism to do that and to explain that. And that's, and, and a lot of it that we find in revelation recalls what the Johannine community would be very familiar with. Uh, and that is this imagery and words and language that comes from the gospel of John, mm-hmm. as well as, um, imagery that comes from the Old Testament. And so when you start considering what the hearers would recall from those places in Scripture that that the community in Revelation would have been familiar with, you start to get a picture of a text that was written to people to encourage them to see Mm -hmm. how their experience um, was, how God was being faithful to them in their experience of suffering, I should say. Yeah. And that's that good. and that it and that's very timeless to us. Yeah. You know, I could show you kind of how that reads. Um, I'll give you an example. Let's. I, yeah. I like to get into the text a little bit. Let's do it. Because, yeah. So basically, you go to Revelation, and, and I'm not. And look at for people that are listening. I'm not saying that this is, has to be what you do, mm-hmm. and take it or leave it type thing. But it just consider the possibility of what's going on in the text. It's kind of how. Yeah. <clears throat> we approach things as scholars. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is giving a prophetic message to seven churches, and he gets to this church in Smyrna, which is where present-day Izmir is at today. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's buried under that city, actually. It's one of the seven churches you can't actually see because it's it's under Izmir, so good luck trying to get to it. Yeah. And it was a very faithful church. And Jesus tells them, you know, I know that you are, I know that you're poor, but -hmm. you're rich. And then he says to them, and some of you, which in the Greek is the part of genitive, doesn't mean all of them, but there's going to be some of them, which is just kind of interesting because, right, it's not all of them, but there are some of them. Mm-hmm. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison by the devil for 10 days. And, and Christ encourages them to overcome. <clears throat> so you're like, wow, what do you do with that? Yeah. And so my thing is, is you know, just kind of acknowledge it's there, shelve it for a while. Don't go ham with it. Just, just, just kind of don't try to read into it. Just, just you, you have this language that they're going to be thrown in the prison for ten days. Mm-hmm. Just hold it loosely for now, and and just let more unfold itself without trying to be overly conclusive about that. There. Yeah. Okay, so he says I'm going to throw you in prison for ten days. Yeah. Um, but be faithful, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, let me um. Pull it up so in case. while you're pulling it up, is that is that the problem of when people read it and they want to, I'm trying to say this carefully, like make more out of it than actually, than what's actually there. Like they're yeah, trying they to do, over, yeah. make it over symbolic, overly symbolic and stuff like that. Yeah. I think, yeah. You know what it is? They just get ahead of themselves. I think sometimes. 
you know, they just get ahead of themselves. So they're they're trying to be conclusive right there. It's going to literal. It's not literal. And, and and they're already talking about that. And they're no longer in the text anymore. And then they're talking about their favorite theologians and what the Sistio <laughs> says. And you know, before you know it, they've gone outside of the text. Yeah. They're trying to decipher it, trying to draw applications to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we never really finished with it. So it says, yeah. um, <clears throat> excuse me. I know your tribulation, your poverty, and the slander of those who say that they're Jews or not, but the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I'll give you the crown of life. I mean, it, that is a mm-hmm. is a wonderful promise. Yeah. So as you, as you go through the text, um, you know, you, you you get into chapter 4 and 5. You get, you get into chapter 3, which is more to the to, to suffering churches that are in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Some of them are not so much suffering. You know, you could argue that Laodicea and, Sa- and Saras aren't really suffering. Philadelphia is. Um, but maybe they're not suffering because they're compromising to avoid suffering. <coughs> so Ooh. then you get to chapter 4 and 5. Ooh, that'll preach. And, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That will preach. Yeah. And then you get to chapter 4 and 5, and there's the throne room. There's heaven. Yeah. Chapter 6, you see the judgments, okay? So you eventually gets in the seals, you get into the bowl, you get into the trumpets, trumpets and the bowls. Okay, but there's this idea, this reoccurring theme of vindication that's taking place. And mm-hmm. how is God answering the cries of the souls on the altar in Revelation, the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 10? And so, I mean, we could walk through it if we had time. If I was doing yeah. a class on it, we'd go through all these verses. But you start yeah. seeing how God is, how oh, yeah. things are slowly working to the to vindicate those who are suffering, those who have been thrown in prison 10 days. Okay. Mm. So you get to this, you get to chapter 20. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me, let me pull it up. You get to revelation chapter 20 and, and hopefully you haven't really forgotten anything. And yeah. you know, in, in the title in the ESV, it says the thousand years. So yeah, if you haven't really brought your, if you've kind of are willing to put your categories down for a second, Categories not being the ar- like pre-mill and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. 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 You know, well, Augustine's pre-mill or Augustine's mm-hmm. Amill and, you know, the Church of Didache's pre-mill church and all these. Are... But those is, yeah, all that stuff. Okay. And well, the church fathers are wrong. The Council of Ephesus. And we're not in the text anymore, mind you. Is that a jab at Gabe? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a jab at our conversation we just had. Yeah. Right. Okay. So. Then you see this in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. He hmm. sees a dragon, ancient serpent, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit, and sealed it over him, so he might not deceive the nations any longer. A thousand years ended that he might be released. So let's just stop for a second. What does this language sound like to you? Are you asking me? I thought it was- yeah, I mean, let, let, yeah. If you don't know the answer, yeah. I'll give it to you. But, but yeah. so then, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in mm-hmm. his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Yeah. Does that sound like anything that we've encountered in the narrative yet? Uh, I'd say no. It sounds like maybe it might remind you of the church in Smyrna, who was thrown oh. into prison. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. See the connection there. I think you, it's possible you could argue. Yeah. Maybe. What's going on here is that those who were thrown into prison for 10 days hmm. are seeing that the one who thrown them into prison is actually 
the one who threw them into prison is actually being thrown into the abyss, not for 10 days, but for a thousand years. Oh, okay. And so yeah. what if, if that's the case, and so when you, when you start to line up the Greek and the language, you see the word cast, you see the word throw, very similar language. Yeah. You see the word prison. You're not being thrown into prison. You're being something, you're thrown into worse. You're being thrown into the abyss. And yeah. then, <clears throat> you know, it's not a thousand, it's not days, it's years. And 10 is a, is, is a is the lowest decimal of 10 units that you is being used in Revelation. A thousand is the highest. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you actually could be showing here is that it would signal to the hearers that whatever the thousand years is referring to, whether it's a figurative or whether it's a literal thousand years, it's showing the ultimate defeat of the mm. enemy and vindication that is coming for yeah. those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have suffered yeah. innocently. So that is a really good way to preach it yeah. because that will preach. And you don't, and you haven't gotten into yet. Well, are you on mill? Well, yeah. are you pre mill? Or are you post mill? But what you are saying is that <clears throat> despite those categories, yeah, Jesus is going to bring justice, and yeah. Jesus sees everyone who has suffered innocently. Jesus sees those yeah. who have been faithful to Him, mm. in spite of their sorrows, and have gone yeah. through life and felt unseen. He sees them. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because thinking the, to the hearers of that church. What is about to happen to you or what's happened to you is going to happen to the one that's doing that to you. But finally, oh, and in a great and in a greater way. Yeah, in a greater way. And justice will be serving. Christ will have the victory. And it's like when you get stuck in just the, the camp arguments, I feel like you miss the beauty of that. Like, I mean, at least the ones I've I've heard and watched and listened to. I'm like, you're right. A lot of people end up quoting They'll use scripture to hop into their favorite theologian on their stance, their preferred stance. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and just the beauty of of yeah, we have a connecting. Yeah, those. we have a, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a text guy. Yeah, I like to work in the text, but we don't have a lot of individuals in Bible school that go to Bible school and actually are, are taught to to go into the text and actually become good readers of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my thing is, you know, like we said, we start with these categories and then we build out or we, you know, that's, that's where we begin. Anybody that's doesn't really fit our category, you know, all mills are at war with the pre-mills and, and, and on and on and on. Um, yeah. dispensationalists don't want to hear it from anybody else. It's like, well, we're not readers of the text. Yeah. Huh? Well, that's good. That's, I appreciate that and, and sharing that a lot. Um, a question I'm kind of looking at the the show notes here, um, and I want to ask you, uh, what would you say to the Christian who wants to start who wants to start studying Revelation? What are, what are a few things you'd have to keep in mind while doing so? So first of all, you can't begin. You have to begin with understanding number one, the apocalyptic genre. That's hmm. primo importance. Yeah. If you don't get what the genre is doing, you can forget about it. Like that is so essential. Yeah. What is, is understanding... the apocalyptic literature or yeah. genre doing? Yeah. Then? Okay. So, so for instance, we have gospel narrative. Yep. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's a narrative and it's historic narrative in a sense that kind of is 
you could argue it's Greco-Roman biography in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know what to expect. You have epistles. You understand the nature of an epistle. It's instructional. Yeah. Um, You know, in in the Old Testament, you have Psalms. Okay, there's Psalms. You have Proverbs, the pithy sayings. When you get to the book of Revelation, it is a genre that really came out of wisdom as well as prophetic. Because Mm -hmm. in the wisdom you get taught how do you live in suffering. Proverbs mm-hmm. kind of deals with that. Ecclesiastes yeah. absolutely deals with that. Mm-hmm. Some of the Old Testament pseudepigrapha deals with that, which is other writings during the Old Testament time that didn't necessarily, that didn't make it into Scripture. Some of the Apocrypha deals with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you have the prophetic writings, which declares the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. Yeah. And that kind of has like a love child. And it creates in the intertestamental period this this uh, hybrid genre, which is apocalyptic, yeah, which deals with the goodness of God in the face of suffering. And it's not necessarily trying to explain it because it doesn't. But what it does is it tries to encourage you and exhort you to live faithful to God in spite of the fact that suffering takes place. Like that's what it's doing. So when you mm. read like the Apocalypse of Abraham, or when you read Fourth Ezra, which is part of Second Esdras. Mm-hmm. You will start, you will see, okay, uh, the, the book of Enoch. I know everybody's yeah. on the book of Enoch, but that was not written by Enoch. I'm sorry to break it to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you'll see how that, those themes are all in there. So Revelation is, uh, if you look at Second Baruch, it's very similar. There are parts from those texts that are very similar to Revelation because it's dealing mm-hmm. with the same themes. Okay. Understanding that and how that works a lot of it is using imagery to encourage people to live faithful unto Yahweh or unto God, or when you have a Christian apocalypse, unto Christ. Yeah, That's what it's going to do. It sets your expectations correctly, and then it also tells you how it gets you there to make that. And it's using apocalyptic imagery that would have communicated that to people, dragons, mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. okay, Beasts, the yeah. sea, things that these individuals would know what it was about, and, and yeah. so so having your expectations and reading those kind of brings you over to Revelation. Like, okay, this is what this is doing here. This yeah. is this is what it's doing. It's not just out here trying to predict the end of the world. It's it's trying to set the right. It gives you yeah. it gives you start on the right foot. So first things first, have the proper filter of what you're about to read everything through, and that's yeah. understanding what the the point of that literature is. Understanding the genre is okay. very important. Perfect. Understand okay. Yep. So from there, then as say you understand that, okay, this is what it yep. is. So then you got up. Yeah. Then I would say the next thing you do is understand John because we start mm-hmm. with the others. We start with the premise that the apostle John is the writer. So okay. he's, he's going to use language that's familiar to his community who has his yeah. gospel. And he's going to use language that's familiar to himself. So have a read of the gospel of John. Spend time reading hmm. the, the, the book of John because a lot of that imagery is going to appear, a lot of those words, a lot of that vocabulary from the Gospel of John, the language, the verbs, the nouns, okay, is going to reappear in the book of Revelation. And so when you're trying to figure out what darkness, what is, mm-hmm. what would the hearers think about when they hear darkness? Well, what, how is darkness used in the book of John? How is the yeah. word cosmos used in the book of John? How is love used in the book of John? What are these things? What do these things recall? 
And I think mm-hmm. that kind of gives you a place to go. So when you're trying, when you're working through apocalyptic literature, you should be recalling the book of John. You should be recalling places in the Old Testament where imagery is coming from. And then number mm-hmm. three is to be familiar with Old Testament imagery. Be familiar with the Old Testament scenes because Revelation likes to think back to the Exodus, hmm. likes to think back to places in Daniel, likes yeah. to think back to <clears throat> places in Ezekiel. And it's kind of yeah. taking that language. But biblical authors often would take language from the Old Testament or John or mm-hmm. the Old Testament and kind of repurpose it. Yeah. And do something different with that language um, to serve what it is they're trying to say. So don't be surprised when you see language in Revelation being re- repurposed for another purpose. And that that yeah. those are that's what it, apocalyptic does. Yeah. Okay. So then, as they're as they're going through um, reading Revelation, I think a lot of people, even according to the polls, um, so how their interpretation or leaning of revelation, literal or metaphorical about 60% said metaphorical and 40% said literal. Um, how would you wrestle with the tension of literal versus metaphorical in the yeah, so, apocalyptic literature? Yeah. So apocalyptic is, uh, so the book of revelation, uh, apocalyptic is more oftentimes is using imagery. I mean, how do you, you're going to, uh, a seven head, 10 horned beast. And what are you going to do with that? And, the people that are literal, they, they usually get stuck when it comes to those types of things, okay? Yeah. Um, the, the, the woman who flees out into the desert. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these are hard to get around in literal. But the confusing part with Revelation becomes the fact that it really is, it's an apocalyptic, it's apocalyptic genre, but it's it's even more of a monster. It's more, Michael Gorman calls it a hybrid genre because mm. it also is epistolatory. Apocalypses yeah. don't have usually at the beginning of them a message to seven churches. Yeah, yeah, and it's and, and you don't see that in in most of the apocalypse from the intertestamental period. So you have this epistolary element from it in the first three chapters. Yeah, send these to the churches, pass it around seven churches, and so I think you have to realize there are places in the text that are mm-hmm. literal. The literal seven churches. But then again, I think literal also fu- the seven churches functions in a way that it's, is it just convenient that there's seven churches or does, was there a literal historic seven churches? But seven there also represents the fact that it's for the message for the church universal. I think the hmm. way John writes, I allow for some leniency for that because John does use a lot of double entendre when you go through yeah. the text and you realize he means one thing and he also means another. It's not always and or it can be both and or you know yeah. this or that it could be both so yeah. th- there are places to answer that i know this isn't probably very helpful <clears throat> there are places where it's certainly literal mm-hmm. jesus commanded john to write yeah the fact that there's a guy named antipas in pergamum who seems to have died well he doesn't mm-hmm. seem to die he's died is he real yeah. is he figurative i i don't know a scholar out there i've read i have read Every commentary in the book of Revelation and the, since 1906, almost word for word. Everyone that matters. That's yeah, just that's the fair. nature of writing a commentary. So um, there's really not much I'm not aware of in some of these things. I mean, I'm sure there's mm-hmm. one or two I'm not aware of, okay? But yeah, I don't know of anyone that took that figuratively. Mm. And 
So there, I think you can take those literal. But then when you get to places where, you know, you see the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, I don't think yeah. that's at all literal. Yeah. I think that that's, that that's figurative, that's pointing at something. Yeah. So when people say, well, the new heavens and the new earth, you know, the golden streets. I mean, here here's another thing that's interesting to consider. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's go to Revelation 11. I'll show you something that is just kind of a cool read. And Let's do because it. maybe the better question to ask is how can I preach Revelation to my church, you know, in a way that Yeah. that is that is powerful. And you get uh, Revelation 11, which is, is is the dead center of the book. Mm-hmm. Revelation 12 is the turning point, which is kind of like another, it marks a major significant uh, structural change in it. Mm-hmm. But Revelation 11 is very important. Yeah. And it says in verse 1 that you have, uh, we'll just start, you know, in, in verse 3. And, and, and it, it says here, I, I grant my authority to my two witnesses. Now, people reading Revelation are going to want to know, Oh, what are the, who are the two witnesses? And the dispensationalists will always say, well, it's Enoch and Elijah. Or it has to be somebody mm-hmm. who's caught up with God to come back because they come from heaven. And let's just put all that aside for a second. Yeah. Not go there because we really don't have that in the text, do we? Yep. It's not there. Nope. It's not telling us anything. So <clears throat> I don't know if the text, if the text doesn't give that to us, I'm, we're mm-hmm. bringing it to the text. And I don't like doing that. That's not how I work yeah. methodologically. Okay. So 1,206 days. Okay. We can get through all that. But look what look what we see here is when they finish their testimony. <coughs> excuse me. The beast rises from the bottomless pit. Will make war on them. He conquers them, and he kills them. Hmm. And their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and um, Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now this is a very interesting passage hmm. because for the first time. We see the Greek word platea, which is the word street. Yeah. And it says that their bodies lay there. The Greek text indicates, to, uh, first of all, you know, according to Jewish law, you had to bury criminals. Yeah. You can't just leave criminals laying out there. Hmm. There's dignity even a criminal's death. Hmm. There's no dignity in the death of these two witnesses. These yeah. two witnesses are brutalized. By the beast. Let's not even try to figure out who the beast is right now. Yeah. Let's just figure that the beast just brutalized them. <clears throat> and then um, where it says here that they were um, killed them, the word here, kill, <coughs> the pactano is a, is a brutal death, is a, is a very brutal, torturous death. And so there's no more than just casually kill them. It's like brutally brutalizing. Kill them. Okay. Very, yeah, this is describing a very brutal, mm. sadistic. Um, yeah. un, this is definitely unjust in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I'm looking off camera because I'm re- I'm reading I'm reading along. Yeah, with you please. Right now. Yeah, please. Okay, so in doing this, like, so let's sit in in this for a second. We think, man, picture that for a second. Just the imagery, and let's not let's not even try to make it literal figure. It's just like, what's the imagery of a People being killed and left on the street. No dignity. Hmm. And these are servants of God. These are people that love the Lord and are doing and they're doing exactly what God tells them to do. They're his messengers. 
they're just witnesses. And it's like it forms questions in your mind like these this is the way that people the people of God are treated. Hmm. This is the way that God God anoints them. He sends them. He empowers them. They have great ministry success in their obedience. And then they're killed and then they're left on the street <coughs> with no dignity. I mean, who does that sound like to you? Sounds like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Sounds like the way Jesus suffered. Yeah. I mean, they gambled for his clothes, etc. Okay. So understanding that, we go to Revelation chapter 21. And let's see something here. Um, let's see here. The yeah, so Revelation chapter twenty-one. Let me just uh, my logos is being slow. Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 21, and we get to verse number 21, and we have have a description of the new Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. and it says here, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Hmm. Now think about this for a second. The last time. The last time that we saw any mention, <coughs> excuse me, of the word street was in verse number 11, uh, chapter 11, hmm. where the bodies were left on the street with no dignity, left to die and left to rot for people to scoff at them. And yet the same individuals who have been faithful to God are now brought into the city of the new Jerusalem, where God has vindicated their suffering. And the hero discovers that the streets are made of gold. Hmm. In a sense, that seems to me that they may hear vindication. Yeah. Those hmm. who have suffered brutally on the streets now inherit streets that are made of gold, streets that welcome hmm. them into the kingdom and yeah. rec- recompenses their unjust suffering. So right. I don't think it's going too far to say that the early church, or the early readers may have been making these types of connections and been yeah. reading this way in a way that they say, man, God is really going to vindicate yeah. our suffering. Yeah. And so it, this this is consistent with a genre that's explained to people in story form why they should continue following Jesus mm. and being faithful to him. And see what we're not doing is speculating. We're yeah. not making this about the end times. We're just making this about a letter of uh, a story about how to be faithful to Jesus. And so the applications mm. for our life are not just one dimensional. They become multidimensional. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's, I love that because I think what you're doing is challenging the let's, let's stop trying to figure out if something's literal or not literal and actually zoom out at what the, what the point of the book is. And I heard you say it several times so far in the conversation, revelation deals with the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. Like, yes. so this is meant to be, an encouragement and an exhortation of like, continue on no matter the amount of suffering and injustice you face as a faithful follower of Christ, it will be justified. It will be vindicated and he will have his justice at the end. 
Yeah, and that's exactly, precisely, and that's exactly what apocalyptic literature seeks to do. It seeks to kind of Oof. cover those themes. That's why I'm saying like, if that's your expectation of Revelation, that's, <clears throat> I think, you know, you're starting off on the right foot. Yeah, and that's, I think that's going to be way less intimidating because I feel like, even I, I feel like just probably recently, in the past couple of months, Revelation's turned a corner for me as well because I'm not like, I feel like going into, I have to figure out where I land on certain things because that's the biggest debate in the book of Revelation. Yep. So rather than going in thinking like, I need to read this to figure out a stance, it's more like, hey, read it for how John intended it for the audience. And that's encouragement and the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. Ooh. Yeah, I think that I think that's what it does. You know, and it, it takes the pressure off of you to have all these categories. I mean, look at I wrote 150 page commentary on it. And it yeah. doesn't which is a small commentary to be honest with you. But <laughs> yeah. um it, it but it, it was informed by all kinds of scholarship and never once had to deal with what does Chris believe about the millennial reign? <clears throat> what is Chris Yeah, I understand you'd have to think to yourself at some point, when is Jesus coming? Because that I'm not saying it's not important to answer that question. Yeah. But I do think that millennial passage is a pretty obscure verse. Yeah. And it's it's to me interesting that the creeds don't necessarily try to hash out historic yeah. from Amel. Just, he's just he's coming back. <laughs> he's coming back when, when he wants. Return, yeah. When he when he yeah. wants. And yeah. it, it seems to me that the real focus of the letter is how do we hmm. handle this? Um, how do we be faithful? Because yeah. the real call is not to have it figured out when he comes back, but how do how do we be faithful? Not that it doesn't matter when he comes. Yeah. But to be faithful until he comes. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. that really is the message. I think if pastors, I, I always tell pastors, hey, look, book of Revelation up for grabs right now. Yeah. Um, for the longest time it's been, been read by <clears throat> uh, dispensational premillennialists. Mm-hmm. pre-tribulationist, I should say. And yeah. um, I think we need to rethink it. I mean, I was very disappointed, but, you know, not you know, not looking down on people, but just disappointed to see during COVID and how there was oh just end-time speculation on stuff, you know. And that <clears throat> that could move you one of two ways. You can have a, a real sour look about the book of Revelation, or yeah. you could say, hey, you know, it's time that we get this right. And yeah. I think we need to be gracious to each other. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that we need to be throwing each other on the bus when it comes to these things. And yeah. being a good reader of the text is important. And I would encourage anybody yeah. that's listening, you know, instead of fooling around with the categories, mm-hmm. making that your only endeavor, um, and reading books that try to decode things for you, um, it, it does serve you if you're going to be serious about it to <clears throat> get serious about learning Koine Greek, um, mm. get serious about learning it to the point that you become familiar with how John writes, yeah. the, the, the vocabulary that John uses, the verbs that he uses, the participles that he uses, etc. And seeing yeah. how the Greek text in John kind of aligns with the Greek text in the book of Revelation and to see what, mm. what is John doing with some of the elements, what is John doing with some of the language that he's using. Because when, when you have that skill, um, your, your reading of Revelation is certainly to be more have more depth to it than just hashing out the categories and what the fathers say about that. Oh yeah. And I I love that because I think it's like here's the the reading and then once you're able to kind of understand and study that level of Greek you're like 
Yeah. This 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 hole goes deeper than I thought. This is a rabbit trail. Awesome. It's way deeper than I thought. Um, yep. That's Very good. True. Hey, f- so for the last few minutes, um, this flew by. Hopefully, yeah. there can be a part two sometime. Um, cool. Anytime. Let's let's ask. So these are submitted questions from my followers that they were really concerned about, but we're gonna like rapid fire them. Okay. Shoot them up. Cool. Um, why are boomers obsessed with the end times? Was the first one. <laughs> the easy answer to that question is without throwing anybody into the bus. Boomers came up in a time where they're inundated with end time dispensational eschatology that was promoted by TBN, CBN, 700 Club, um, the um, Jim Baker's, uh, what was this club called? PTL Club. And that was all the rage back then. Uh, they were the first ones to get their hands on a great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. So the time formed them to think about it that way. A, a good study mm-hmm. for you to do is get a copy of Late Great Planet Earth, which was written in 1970 when the boomers were in their 20s. And hmm. read that and just see. And, remember, and, and don't take that book lightly. That sold 30 million copies. Oh, wow. And see how that formed them. That was how people were reading yeah, And that created, what that did was it politicized our readings of Revelation. It made uh, very conspiratorial. It connected government technology mm-hmm. to and uh, government weapons to decoding the book of Revelation. And it became turned into date setting. And so boomers were formed mm-hmm. during that time. Yeah. That's basically it's it. A product product of their environment. And the teachings yeah, and you'll find received. out that those boomers are those boomers that are obsessed with it are not are in North America pretty much. If you go to UK, you're not going to find many of them there unless mm. they've been influenced by North America. Preachers coming out of North America, so USA baby. All right, <laughs> <laughs> why are end times talked about more around elections, politics, and world events? I mean, within the question is the answer, right? <laughs> that's I mean, that's it, fair. It, Within the question is the answer. Um, I think because, as we're saying before, there is a conspiratorial agenda behind end times that for Jesus to return, Mm -hmm. there needs to be... um, The the, the rapture is going to... uh, So the people that would subscribe to this, the pre-tribulational dispensationalists, would believe that the rapture of the church is going to occur before... Hmm. A period of seven, a, a tribulation period of seven years. In that okay. tribulation period of seven years, they believe in something called the revised, or they may say revived, Roman Empire. And they believe that Europe's going to have to reform itself under the hmm. revived Roman Empire. This is what they teach. Uh, finish Dake, get God's plan for man, get a Dake Bible, you can read all about it. Okay. So anytime they see any, to- any type of movement, uh, war taking place in Israel, the president's. Hmm. Working with, uh, it's not Israel, excuse me, Europe. They think that all of Europe is going to be reformed. They think that mm-hmm. Russia's Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38, 37, mm-hmm. 38. And they think that, you know, all, they're going to, there's there's a worldwide plan to reshape this. Um, and elections usually have to do with the restructuring and reformation of government. Mm. And so it becomes, like I said, they become obsessed with that. Yeah. And this is why elections usually create end times fervor. Wars create end times fervor because they see the reforming of Europe turning into yeah. 
the revived Roman Empire, and they're taught to believe that prior to that yeah. happening, there's a rapture, and so you can connect the dots. Yeah, especially now as the time that when we're recording this, it's, there's a Hamas and Israel conflict and war yep. going on, and so it's just yeah. So I've left exploded yeah, I've left even Is- more. Yeah, I've left Israel out of this specifically because I don't want this yeah. to become a political uh, podcast. But that, yep. there's a lot that has to do with that, and I'll probably get banned for some reason for saying those words yeah. at this moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's there's a lot to this yeah. that would would deal with that. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. take that up another time. Okay. Okay. So last two questions: What is the mark of the beast? <laughs> <laughs> or, so or maybe maybe there's only one question one question left for our time. <laughs> Yeah, so I have a class that I deal with that at Theta Shoot where I where I talk about that. Um, okay. So you have to deal with Revelation chapter thirteen, the beast coming up out of the sea, the beast coming up out of the water, the ocean, this this excuse me, the sea, the beast coming up out of the land. I think, I think the mark of the beast, quite simply, and I can explain to you how how I arrive here, but has to do with people whose lifestyle follows follows the beast. And I think the beast has a lot to do with uh, a politicized system that is anti that that serves people that promotes living contrary hmm. to Jesus. Okay. And so when people begin to live and order their lives in a way that is contrary to following Jesus, I think that they're following the beast. And I think the mark of the beast has to do with that more mm. so than a literal actual mark on people's skin or a microchip. Or um, a mark, I think yeah. It's, yeah, it's a line in your lives in a way um, that shows that mm. you're not being faithful to the Lamb because contextually everything in Revelation has to do with this faithfulness to Christ yeah. and this faithfulness to the Lord. And those that that aren't that way line themselves up with the beast. Hmm. You know, in Scripture, yeah. it, it shows how it, it sh- so it has to be this, right? Those who are faithful to Jesus within Scripture have on them written, okay, the name of God. You see this. Hmm. So you see how they receive a mark. The faithful in Christ receive a mark. Yeah. And I think that mark is a way, uh, is, is their faithfulness. They're aligned. They're known by God. But I think that those that are unfaithful are known as the those that have lined up with the beast. So I don't necessarily prescribe to people mm-hmm. taking a, a literal mark or you know mm-hmm. your credit cards or the vaccination yeah. or whatever it may be. Yeah, that's good. Man, I I wish we could keep going, um, but we'll have to we'll have to have part two with this. But. Uh, yeah, so I thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insight and your knowledge. And once again, um, if you have not checked out Theosu, go subscribe. It is probably cheap. It's 10 times cheaper than what you're probably paying for coffee on a monthly basis anyways. So uh, make sure you go listen to all the excellent content there. Chris, thank you so much. Appreciate thank you. you. Thanks for having me, Brennan. And uh, long live yeah. the office theology. That's right. We will we will continue onward and making fun of everybody under the sun and no matter what <laughs> camp you find yourself in. Um, yeah, so make sure you follow Chris on all things social media. And yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much.